This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Welcome back to The Unspoken Agreements podcast. I am your host, Adam Esco. Before we get to this week's amazing guest, I'm going to share a little bit about myself for those of you who don't know me. For the first five years of my practice as a periodontist, as a dentist, a gum dentist, I was really, really not myself. I was miserable. I was feeling dread most of the time. I would look towards the weekends and then when it get to Sunday night, that feeling would creep in and, ah, oh, man, I got to go back to work the next day. There came a crucial time in my life where I had to make a decision. Do I go and bite the bullet and buy my father's practice and commit to doing this type of work for 5, 10, 15, 20 more years? I couldn't see it. I couldn't get myself to commit. I was terribly afraid of doing that for for too much longer. That one decision which not to do it allowed me to open up a door to do what I really love, to coach, to work with people to get a different result in their life. People that feel the same thing. They just they may not be able to see another possibility, another result for themselves, but through our work together can start to open up and see new results and how they are capable of actually achieving them. We help them get there fast. So if this is something that speaks to you, please feel free to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. I also want to thank TruthWorks Media who help produce this podcast. They are so great to work with. I, I'm really grateful to be working specifically with Michael a lot of the times. TruthWorks Media works with large corporations and small businesses and startups. Podcast in 2020 is taking over. And TruthWorks Media works with both Fortune 500 companies and people starting for the first time. They are terrific. I highly recommend them. Please feel free to check them out if this is something that interests you. Now to our amazing guest. This is someone who's near and dear to my heart. She's not only a friend, a mentor, Davina is my coach. She was my first coach and I still continue to work with her because she is the best. She and her husband Galen have built something really unique for dentists that really want to up-level, up-level their photography, their mindset, their branding, their craft, their way of life. I strongly encourage you to check them out. They're changing the game and they do it with such fun and joy and they're, it's really infectious. So let's get into this week's episode with Davina Dietrich. All right, it is my absolute pleasure to be with Davina Dietrich today. This is a real, real treat for me. It's like it's like when you're you're with your your mentor, like you're the person you admire so much and you taking the time to be here, Davina, is it's gonna be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So thank you, first of all, for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be with you today. Awesome. 
So for to loop everybody in, I, I want to share a little bit on how I got to meet Davina. I was going through my own personal journey of just being lost, trying to decide what I want to do with my life. And I finally made up the decision. I was like, I got to hire a coach. Like, this is the time for me to hire a coach. I want to be a coach. I want to hire a coach to help me get become a coach. And Davina, I don't know if you know any of this, but I had just talked to a couple of coaches, kind of like an interview to discover if it was going to be a good match. And right before, so I hadn't even met you or Galen, your husband. I had just talked to someone for about an hour. I was like, yes, I'm so excited. I just met the guy that I'm going to be working with and it's going to be amazing. And I knew we had this scheduled call together between you, me, and Galen. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just go through with it. But I mean, it's just a formality because I already know what I'm going to do. And so we got on the call together we probably spoke for almost two hours and I had this like feeling like, Oh shit, did not expect any of that. I thought I had my whole mind made up and you totally rocked my world and gave me a lot to think about. And honestly, it wasn't even that tough after that. I knew in my heart that I wanted to work with you. And ever since that time when that decision has been made, it has been such an amazing journey and you've taken me places I did not even know existed. And so you being here really means a lot to me. And I'm, I'm excited to share that with everybody else. So thank you for sharing that story. No, I had, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, formality, like I'll do it, but like, what's the point? And then the person that introduced us, Jesse, my good friend was like, just trust me, just have a conversation with them, see what's going on. I felt like I was hearing my dad's voice, like just give it a try or like all the way back when I'm trying vegetables, please just try it. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm the broccoli of coaching. You, <laughs> you are the broccoli of coaching. It's really good for you. You might not want to do it at first, but once you have it, you feel better. Exactly. <laughs> Got that. So, I'll take it. One, here's where I think would be a great place to start. You know, one of the areas in which you have really helped free me up is early on, you kind of brought up the idea of what selfishness really means. And you also defined what authenticity really meant. And I had, my thing was, I was a big people pleaser. It's something that I continue to work on every day, just like calling myself out when I get into that people pleasing mode. And discovering this was such a, a crucial building block for me to develop my self-love and self-care. Can you talk a little bit about selfishness and authenticity with and share that with everyone? Yeah, for sure. So I think culturally, right, selfishness is not a good thing to have. It's that we should put everybody else first and then whatever remains is, is kept for us. And I think that in positions, a lot of the people that I work with, right, are high achievers and they're leaders and they're responsible for a lot of other people and they're responsible for leading themselves, their team, their family. They have a lot of responsibility. And so it just doesn't make a lot of sense that the person who is responsible for leading a group of people, whether family, employees, a business, gets the remainder of what's left over after they've given everything else. Mm. And I actually think that it's really poor leadership to think that you can perform at your highest while giving yourself the least amount to be able to work with, right? Like yeah. it's 
it's this idea that I think people start to get wrapped up in that um, they make assumptions about their character based on false metrics. And what I mean by that is they give themselves just enough to be mediocre and then expect excellent performance. And when those two, they can't reconcile the difference, then it starts to turn into a story about how something is wrong with them. And so that's one of the first places that I like to ask is like, okay, is there something that's actually not a match that's happening in your life? Or have you just not given yourself the proper ingredients to be the thing that you say that you want to be? And so it's one of the easiest place to look, easiest place to look. And I also think that it's not looked at very often because it's really painful to think that you could be, do, or have more. And it starts with the requirement of giving yourself what you need to perform excellent. Yeah. And it's funny, you thank you for saying that talk about how this happens in high achievers, right? So you th- it's almost like, well, how do we get to be such high achievers without having this core belief where we got to like take care of ourselves? So how do you think this all starts and develops? Yeah. So a lot of people that I work with, part of them, part of them being high achievers comes from some place of inadequacy, right? Or a chip on their shoulder mm. or trying to change a situation that, that they were in. For me personally, I grew up in a town of 8,000 people and there wasn't a lot of options about what I'm going to do with my life. So in the beginning, a big driving force for me was to get out of the place that I grew up in, right? This tiny town to have a life that was completely different than anything I had ever known. And so that kind of chip on my shoulder, right? Like it was a chip. It was like, I have to be the best if I'm ever going to get out of here. That was always my motivation to perform excellently. And when when I didn't, I would remind myself of the fear, like, do you want to stay in the same place? Well, then you better get your shit together, mm. right? And so I think a lot of high achievers have that in some way. It's like the bar was set for them to be excellent. And a lot of the driving force could be guilt or shame or feeling inadequate and having to prove themselves. And so when you take that away, it becomes really scary because you're like, how am I going to create when I don't feel like, how am I going to create without the pressure of not feeling good enough? That's usually the thing that drives me. I have to prove it to somebody. It's like, when, when can we start accepting the idea that we could put ourselves first? Uh, what does that look like? You know, how do you pierce through this idea with people that have been trained in their mind from the get-go of, well, it, it's not okay, or I'm not a good person if I take care of myself. I need to take care of everybody else first. Yeah, well, I actually think that by taking care of yourself first, it allows you to be able to serve the people that you're responsible for and your role of leadership more powerfully, right? So if you're coming, if you're coming with your A game, let's just take parenting, for example. If you're full, if you're giving yourself all the things that you need, you show up in parenting and partnership completely different. The amount of compassion and patience you have for your, your significant other or your kids changes drastically when you're coming from a place of like, I've got all the things that I need right? You're present. You're not just going through the motions. And those memories and those points of connection that you can make with your kids and your spouse, because you're coming from a place of like, I have it to give instead of I'm just clocking in and clocking out, changes the dynamic of those relationships, right? And at the end of our life, like what is the thing that's really the most important to us? Is that we clocked in and clocked out on our relationships or that we were actually able to give of ourselves to the people that we love? Absolutely. Yeah. And what happens when we don't have our cups filled, so to speak, is that we start blaming, we become resentful, 
you know, we're, we're coming from this place of lack as a place of abundance. Yeah. And I think the, the, the thing that I think is, that is so gross that also happens is entitlement. Mm-hmm. Like entitlement's just like, I hate that shit mm-hmm. because it's, you're so depleted that you start looking to everybody else to be like, well, you owe me this, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not grateful anymore. It's like, I've done all of these things for you. And somebody somewhere owes me something, whether it's your staff, mm. your family, right? And yeah. that's a place that partnership and relationship and collaboration and building memories and connection does not come from the bedrock of entitlement. Like it's just impossible to get there. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I could relate that so well when I look back in my past. It's like I wasn't filled. I put everyone first and yes, in some ways that was really safe. It it kept me from feeling that judgment fear, right? That paralyzing fear that if I put myself, if I start putting myself first, then guess what's going to happen? Like this person's not going to like me or that person's going to be upset with me or there might be a circumstance in my mind that will happen as a result that will rock the boat. And I was, I was paralyzed by that, that concept. And I think, honestly, a lot of us are really, really concerned with this concept of, well, what are they going to think if I do this? Like this idea of the judgment of other people and how that stops us from living the life that we really want, what we want to be, do, or have, like you said. How often do you see that fear of judgment of others stop us from really becoming what we want to become? Yeah. I mean, it's such a huge thing because, because we measure ourselves by the metrics that other people define, Mm. right? Like, like if we're in a people pleasing energy, it's like, well, what metric, what metric are you measuring me by that I have to live up? And we have to be honest with ourselves that everybody's metric is different. Mm. And so think about how draining that is. If everybody's standard for how you show up is completely different, how the hell are you supposed to know if you're meeting that? Like it's exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so that's a place where we have to really look and say, is this even achievable? A lot of times we get this in our head that, okay, we're going to people please and that's going to work. But we set like, it's just an impossible metric to achieve is making everybody happy. And, and the judgment that comes, I always think is so interesting because what we have to really look at is, is somebody telling you, you're a selfish person because you're not doing the things that I need. Like that's the true definition of selfishness, right? Like I'm mad at you for not being the person that I think that you should be. Mm. And it's like, wait, wait, what? Wait, you're calling me selfish because I'm not acting in accordance to how you think I should be. Like when you really break it down and that's what somebody is saying, that's crazy. Like that them asking you, to be who they want you to be in order to serve them. I think that is the definition of selfish. Beautiful. Yeah. Having selfishness, the idea of having someone else be the person that you want them to be, as opposed to authenticity, like you say, being the person and doing the things that you want to be that fills you up. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's our our God-given choice, our God-given right. And it's kind of why we're here. Right. And I think that this is another important thing to note is that when we're having this conversation, I am in not any way advocating be like, okay, well, 
just say screw it to all of your family and friends and all of the things and don't be there for them. That is not this conversation. And I see that happen a lot too, right? Where somebody hears this message and they get the interpretation. Oh, okay. Well, I could basically tell everybody to fuck off and do whatever I want. That's not this conversation either. It's really being intentional about filling yourself up and being able to give to other people from a different place, from a place of inspiration, not from a place of martyrdom. Beautiful. You know, it's funny, we started in such a great, great place and I'd love to stay, spend some more time here and we'll come back to it. But for those that are listening, you weren't always this, well, you might've been always this very well articulated, eloquent speaker, but you were also a dentist for a period of time. You went through dental school, you had your reasons for going through dental school. You have a really great story with how you went into school, why you got into it and how you got out of it. Can you share a little bit about that with the listeners? Yeah. So I, so I am a dentist. Um, I don't, I don't clinic, I don't clinically practice, but how I got into dentistry was, like I said, I'm from a small town, 8,000 people. And I always knew I wanted to be, do, or have more, but I didn't know what more was. And so when you look at the town that I'm from, there were really just a few options, which was, it's a predominantly oil filled town. So it was like, okay, you either do that or you get married and you have children really young or I, they were like teachers, right? Because that, that was like basically it. So mm. I'm like, okay, these three options are, are not three options that I'm down with. Mm. Um, but we did have one dentist in the town and there was only one. And so my mom and dad were like, well, why don't you go like talk to him? And I was like, eh, okay. So I just did it to make my parents happy. This was not like my vibe. This was not what I was going to do. But I had one conversation with him and his wife was a hygienist and they had been, you know, this has been my dental practice forever. And they offered me a summer job. I was in high school and I was like, yeah, sounds great. I need a summer job. And through working with them, they really expanded what was what I thought was possible for me, right? Like schedule wise, how they related the vacations that they took, um, like being business owners, I thought was really cool. And so they expanded what was possible. And I was like, this is something I can really get behind. So I made that decision age of 16. I was like, this is what I'm doing. And so I never really like thought of anything different. That was the decision I made and that's what I committed to. So fast forward, I became a hygienist because here's the other thing is that I became a hygienist first because I didn't think that becoming a dentist was like, I, I, I thought it was possible, but I was still kind of like wobbly around it because I didn't have anybody in my family who had a four-year degree. I didn't have anybody, much less go to professional school. So that to me was really kind of like reaching for the stars, right? Like, is this a real thing? Is this even possible? And so I went to hygiene school first because I needed to, to be able to get to that place first, right? To expand me a little bit more. And then I went to dental school. And I practiced for three years clinically, and I was like, this is not it. Mm. This isn't it. And so through going through my own discovery, my own journey about figuring out, like, can I spend the rest of my life doing this is how I got into personal growth and development. It's something that I had always been into, but now it was like a new focus of really understanding how I work internally because I had to make a new decision. I'm like, life is really long and it's even longer if you're doing something that you're not totally in love with. So three years into clinical practice, I retired myself from dentistry because I was able to fully replace my dental income becoming a professional coach. So that's how, that's how I got here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to hear you mention indirectly about your your doubts. Like, 
that realm of possibility of becoming a dentist still wasn't there. You had the one example of the person in your town that was a dentist. He went and shadowed that person. At, and yet there was self-doubt on, well, I can't necessarily, I can't go there. I have to go to hygiene first. And then from hygiene school, I, I would become a dentist. Like that, that belief in what you thought was possible be became present as you went through the first door, went to hygiene school, then went into dental school. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, and that was beautiful. And and so it's funny because now from the outside, if someone's going to look at you and Galen and things that you are building in your careers and in your profession, it's like, wow, these people are just moving fast. I mean, were you always an action oriented doer and how, and where does self-doubt come in to the things that you're doing today? I've, uh, yeah, so I've always been like very action oriented. So in seventh grade, I decided that I wanted to skip a grade. Like that's just what I was doing. <laughs> okay. So I don't think I've ever told you this. That's funny. No, never heard so, that. So I decided that I was going to skip a grade and this is, I was like, this is just what I'm doing. And so I went to go, I told my mom, I was like, yeah, so I'm, I've just decided that I am not going to do eighth grade, that I'm going to go directly into high school. And my mom, I remember she made the comment like, I think you're smart and that's for really smart kids. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I was like, what did you just say to me? (laughs) Like I felt it. I was like, I am going to show you. So I went to my dad and I told my dad, I was like, this is my plan. And he's like, okay, go and do all the legwork and then let me know where I need to come in. I was like, fantastic. So I set up an appointment with my principal and I was like, what do I need to do to make this happen? She told me and I did the things. So I never went to eighth grade. So when I graduated wow. high school, I was 16 years old. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, wow. so all of that to say, like, I've always had the, like, I've always been available to do the damn work, right? Yeah. And like, doubt is part of it. But sometimes I think that we give too much of a voice to doubt yeah. because we think that we should. Because I also do believe that there is this underlying piece of us that like knows, Right. So there's the piece of you that's like, yeah, maybe skipping a grade doesn't happen. But more than often, I think there's that part of us that's like, no, you know that this is happening. And you placing the doubt in there, I oftentimes think it's just to protect your own feelings. I don't think it's real. I think it's to protect your own feelings so that if it doesn't happen, you can be like, well, see, at least I didn't invest all this emotion in it. And at least I saw the disappointment coming. And so now I don't have to pick myself up from rock bottom because I told you so, right? It's like that need to be right. And yeah. oftentimes I think that's what the doubt is more than like it being a real thing. Totally. And and the fear of getting into a really, really uncomfortable, p- painful place within yourself where like you said, you have to pick yourself up or you're just not willing to go to sit in. Yeah. And so like, that's such, that's such an interesting piece to me because when you really look at it, it's like, you have to ask yourself, can you survive the emotions that come with life? Mm -hmm. Right? Like the disappointment, the failure, whatever it is, those are all emotional things that you have to process. And if you can have the emotional intelligence to process the disappointment or failure that might be on the other side, then you can definitely call the self-reliance internally to be able to lead yourself through that. And I think that's what people forget is they're so worried about being rocked emotionally that they forget all the times that they actually have been rocked emotionally and that they have led themselves through and come out the other side. That's great. Did you see a lot of self-doubt from your parents? Because it seemed like, you know, you're making the decision when you're in seventh grade to skip eighth grade, like, 
this crazy confidence that I could do it. Even when your mom says a comment like that, like I'm going to show her, like where did that just drive and confidence come from? Does that come from your parents? You think that's innate in you? I, so I think that it comes from my parents, but in a, in an roundabout way, meaning that, so my parents were really young when they had me, they were 18. And so essentially it was like children raising children, a child, right? <laughs> so in a lot of ways growing up, I looked at my parents and they were so young and they were doing like young people stuff. Like mm. I can literally remember my parents' 30th birthday. Wow. And so I think that growing up that way, I had a lot of freedom to think for myself yeah. because my mom and dad were so young. It was not like they were like, this is what we're doing. Like clockwork, right? Like yeah. those parents who really drive you, they were kind of like, I mean, we're all kind of learning this like, together, the three of us. And so from that place, I think that I got a really strong internal compass mm. because I had the freedom to be able to do that for myself. Does that make sense? It definitely does. Yeah. Because you weren't being programmed with as many messages or maybe you were, but you were still able to have the time and space to check in and be whatever expression that you wanted to be. Yes. And I, I like, I, I think I think a lot. And so as an only child and as a person that was kind of figuring it out with my parents, I would spend a lot of time thinking about things. Mm. And honestly, I don't think that people do a lot of that. One of the things that sometimes is frustrating to me is people will say things that have been in their internal programming for so long. And I'm like, but have you really thought about this? Like actually thought about this? Does this make sense? Mm. And most oftentimes... I think a big part of that is that we're missing the time to be able to think about something and really walk ourselves through whether or not it serves us. And, and uh, yeah, that's great. And it's also tough, right? Because until you helped me become aware of the stuff that I was thinking and there, by the way, was another side of it or what if it wasn't true, like it just it's a blind spot for a reason. You can't necessarily always see it or become aware of it until you become aware of it or someone shows it to you or something happens in your life that like startles you or shocks your system. Um, and that's, and that's the beauty of having those people in your life. Those, those people to help, help you see the things that you don't even know, like, Hey, this is just something you think is true. And it's really not, it's actually bullshit and you're just living it and you're seeing the results show up over and over. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, one of our, one of our coaches was somebody that really helped me do that. Just think in a totally different way. And I remember every time I would spend time in his world, I, like I would come back and I would be like, I would see things so, so much differently than when I had went. And I loved that feeling. It was like mm. a good pain, yeah. like a, like a yeah. beautiful pain. Like Oh, like this is what you always say. You're like, oh, oh, like when you have your aha, it sounds something like that. Like, oh, wow. Like, okay, I get it now. Like, what is yeah. the truth in this? I mean, how many times have you shared that with me to ask myself, what is the truth in this? Like, what is actually true? Step back. Yeah. One of the, the things that I notice about the way you approach life was a total mindset fuck from the way I approach life, which is it's okay to work or do things in your life with ease as opposed to having some of the things supposed to be hard or really a struggle. Where 
Can you share a little bit more about how you got to that place and why that's actually something that can be true for someone else that's listening? Yeah, I I would love to, because I love this. I love this topic so much. So, um, I am 100% available for work and working. When I say working hard, I just mean like, like long hours or Mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like I'm available for that. I've always, I, I actually love work and I love long hours of work and I love productivity. I love all of that. But what I don't love is the suffering. And so when I say hard work, I mean work that comes with suffering and the suffering looks like, like, this is just so difficult. It's like eating away at my soul. How, how much longer am I going to have to do this? You're like looking for the countdown timer. Right. And so I have been traditionally a person who is available for the hard work, but I'm not available for the suffering. And when I really got serious about getting a coach, it was because I was in this suffering place and it was at the point when we, when I wanted to build a business, Galen and I were like, this is what we're doing. And everything just seemed so fucking difficult, like emotionally difficult, mentally difficult. So yes, we were doing the things, but it was also like, this is so hard and it feels defeating and I don't know which direction to go. And, and that's what I'm talking about, about the suffering inside of the work. And so a couple of places that we've gotten to that in our business have been places where we've hired help and support and have been able to get through that. And a lot of times it is somebody helping, like you just said, see your blind spot, shift your perspective, get you realigned with your vision and get you realigned back to the necessary tasks that need to happen day to day. And then you're, you're doing work, but there's no, um, like it just doesn't feel the way I describe it is there are times when I've hit my goal and hitting the goal was supposed to give me the feeling that I wanted, right? Happiness, accomplishment, whatever. But the road to the goal was so fucking miserable that hitting the goal didn't feel good. Mm. What's it, what's what's one thing that comes to mind when you think of that? Um, I think probably like maybe the first year of our business, yeah, where it was like trying stuff out and figuring things out and like being you know like okay, expanding ourselves internally to be able to to lead ourselves first and then to be able to lead other people mm. and to put ourselves out there. in a way that invited a lot of criticism, right? Teaching a master class three years after finishing dental school is a very bold thing to do. So so you, you open yourself up to a lot of criticism. So leading yourself from that perspective and all, like I was telling you, like all the emotional stuff that comes along with that, um, was really challenging. And there were a lot of growing pains in that first year. Wonderful. Yeah, I've heard you say the words, I am available or I am 100% available for X, Y, and Z. And you say that internally, like inside your own self-thoughts. And I've also heard you share that with me as a way to set boundaries with people in your life that may not be on board with helping your progress. Things like, I am not available for this conversation right now, um, which which can be super helpful if someone's trying to have that belief become stronger and that soil turn into more solid ground. Can you talk about 
why that's so important. Uh, I mean, I, I could talk a little bit about this, but you can you talk about a little bit about why that's so important to set boundaries when you have a new belief that you really need to protect? Yeah, for sure. So the best way to describe it is like, it is this little tiny seed, right, that's being planted. And you can't let people go and kick your dirt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pour, pour their soda on it and like be like, isn't this the same as water? Right. Like if it was something that you really cared about and you really loved, you would water it. You would make sure that it was getting sunlight. You would make sure that it's protected from the elements. And a belief is no different. When you're very first starting out and you're working on a new belief, you want to really be intentional about where are you where are you planting that? And are you planting it? And then you're going into a group of people who completely step on it and destroy it because, and I'm not saying, I, I want to be clear about yeah. this because this is not a conversation that's like, you have to be so fragile that you don't go out into the world. Mm. That's not it. Mm. But initially you have to be able to settle in and wrap your own mind around it so that when you do go out into the world and you take the criticism you can weather this storm, yeah. right? So this isn't like a forever, just isolate yourself and be such a snowflake that you can't, yeah. you can't deal with the emotion of having people question you. But it is like in the beginning, nurture it until it starts to take some roots and then you can take it out into the world. Yeah, no, I think I, I really think this is just so, so important where you develop a new belief. I'm going to do X. I'm going to end up going for this goal. I'm going to make more money. I'm going to have a better relationship. I'm going to treat myself this way. And it's the counter opposite of what you've believed in the past of what was true. So, okay, you're like, okay, fine. I'm going to finally adopt this belief. But the other voices inside your head, the subconscious is going to be really loud. So if you're going to surround yourself with people please early on have it be the people that are going to support your goal, support your vision, support you in this. Because when you're around the other people early on, like you said, until your seed has sprouted, what is that going to do? That is going to turn up the dial tone on the self-doubt. And then you're going to get, then you'll get some confliction there. It's going to be a real battle and you got to protect it. Like you said, I I love that so much when you say that. Yeah, I do. I think it's, I think it's so important. I mean, you're, you're already in a place where you're kind of doubting yourself too. Hmm. So we don't, we don't need to add to that. You're already dealing with your own internal battle. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, what's funny. I think about um, when I first was interviewing you going back way back, uh, I looked on your website and I saw that TED talk of you talking, what was it, eight months pregnant or close to it. I mean, how much courage had to go into getting up on stage, talking, um, almost fully pregnant. Can you talk about what that experience was like for you? You know, how you got yourself through the doubt, uh, if there was any? Yeah. So that experience was like the most fun. It was so much fun. And part of the reason why it was so much fun is because when I applied to be a TED speaker, I didn't have any attachment around it because my first public speaking gig ever was on the TEDx stage. I had never done any public speaking up until that point. So when I when I applied to do that, yeah, no, I hadn't done anything. Nope. I hadn't done anything. 
So when I applied to do that, I didn't have an expectation of myself. I didn't make it mean anything. Mm. I wasn't like, if I get this TEDx thing, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be somebody great. And I also wasn't like, if I don't get it, then that means like I suck, right? Like Mm. there's something wrong with me. It didn't mean anything. It was just like, it was something that I wanted to experience. So when I went into the application process, I went into it with complete joy and excitement and zero attachment. And that's not always easy to do. But in this particular instance, that's the vibe that I had going into it. And so throughout the entire process, I kept that energy. I didn't make it mean anything. I was so excited to learn from you know, all of my coaching staff about how to refine public speaking. And I worked on this little 10 minute talk for like six months. It was so much went into that little talk and it was so much enjoyment throughout the entire thing because nothing was at risk. Wow. Wow. So powerful there. When you talk about not having attachment almost from your place of of a place of ignorance. And I don't mean that in any positive or negative, but just a not knowing or not uh, putting any meaning, like you said, on it. Yeah. So when I was on stage, it was like, it was just fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I didn't expect, I didn't expect anything. I just wanted to do it for the, for the pleasure of doing it for yeah. the experience of doing it. Yeah. And so that, that was, that was the whole vibe of the whole conversation that I was and the whole experience of Ted. Uh, yeah. You know, and this, this is this is the question I want to ask because this is so important, I feel like. You know, so many people, it just got into 2020 and it's like, okay, what are you planning on doing this year? What's your, what's your goal going to be? What's your big hairy goal? But how can you help people differentiate and put a distinction between setting a goal and, and having this big vision and feeling and tapping into how amazing that would be to work towards and achieve that, but also at the same time, remaining unattached to the result. How do you, how do we do that? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you how I do it, what my process for, for doing it is. So there are things that I want to accomplish. And a lot of times what I see happen is that people will define what they want to accomplish in a year and they put a time frame on it. And when that year ends, they make it mean something if they haven't accomplished it, right? Like, okay, well, there's something wrong with me or they disconnect from the energy and they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to start fresh in the new year. And I think that when we do that, we lose a lot of the lessons and a lot of the memories and a lot of the progress that we made from the beginning, from that previous year. We don't wrap it up and we don't take all of that as a jumping off point for the next year. So when we say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to accomplish all these goals this year. And then we cut off the energy. I personally don't do that. The goal takes as long as it takes. And I have a vision for what like the larger thing is that I know I can't accomplish within a year because that brings me, it magnetizes me and it pulls me so that I can do the day-to-day stuff. But then I also have the micro goals. Those are what I call my expanders, right? So to give you an example, I, um, Galen and I have set the intention of taking a sabbatical year in 2024, the entire year. I didn't say that I'm going to do that now, right? That to me is just like, that's too far. I can't wrap my head around it. My belief system is not engaged in it. But what I did do this year is that I, I booked us a vacation because we've actually never went on a vacation that was not work related until this year. 
So what I'm saying is I set myself up for micro expanders that play into the role of the larger vision so that I can stay on track, but I also have something that's magnetizing me forward. Yeah, that's wonderful. And and just to bring some attention to the one thing you said is how can you take the lessons from whatever previously happened and not have it mean anything about you? If something didn't go the way that you intended it to go, it, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It means this didn't work because of X, Y, and Z. Right. And that's like, that's where we have to really start being scientists and investigators into our own life, right? What worked, what didn't work? Did it work that you were, you know, highly focused and that you were celebrating your wins? Did that work? Did it not work that maybe you put a goal that is too lofty that you couldn't actually get behind? And so that's the reason why you didn't accomplish it, right? Sometimes we pick goals that are not in alignment with us. And then we shame ourselves for not being able to accomplish it. If you are making 50000 a year and you want to go to a million, that's a great goal to have. But if you don't have the micro goals on the way to a million, mm-hmm. and then you make it mean something that you didn't hit a million in a year, it's like you just set yourself up for total disappointment. Yeah, it's never going to happen. Whatever messages comes with that, I'm never going to be able to do it. I'm not good enough. It'll just trigger, you know, potential deep down thoughts about yourself which again isn't even true it's just did you did you go about it the way that's going to be the most productive for yourself right you turn it into a story about yourself mm-hmm. and really what we have to look at is okay did you plan accordingly did you one of the things that i see people do and they they just skip over it as if it's not a foundational piece is they don't know where they're starting Right. So in our example, if you're going if you're going from 50,000 a year to a million, if you don't know that you're starting at 50,000 a year and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to go to a million. That's a really hard jump for you to make because you don't have the belief that it's possible. Totally. Right. And people do this in all kinds of areas. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important to bring attention to, you know, if it's outside your current belief on what's in the realm of possibility, uh, are you really going to be able to back it up with your actions? Are you going to call bullshit on yourself subconsciously? Right. And so I think it's important that we set goals that expand, expand our belief a little bit more, right? So if you're at 50,000, you're like, okay, maybe next month I'll try making 55 Hmm. and then 60, right? Like you ratchet it up so that your belief can get behind it. Yeah. And what's that doing along the way, right? It's like your belief muscle, uh, is up leveling along the way. Like, oh, that's all I need to do to get this. Uh, you know, setting another little level so that you could just grow your confidence, grow your belief into where you really want to go or where your next step is. Totally. And that can happen really quickly, right? Like that can happen really quickly. But the hardest jump to make is like having no belief behind it <laughs> to having like 100% belief behind something that seems impossible. It's like, well, yeah, then your goal is going to take for fucking ever if it happens at all yeah. because we're not doing the things that expand us along the way. Yeah. You know what's funny? People are probably listening to this and it's pretty evident that, I'm going to use your words here, that you're a bad bitch. Like you're you're a boss. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you ain't messing around. So here, I, there's a couple questions that are stemming from this. I don't want to just say that to boost your ego, which I could do. I also want to say that um, do you have people that you like look at either women men that really inspire you that you're like 
I want to tap into what they have to motivate you to be that person? Or is that more self-driven for yourself? Are you just getting out of your own way? No, I do. There are people because those people serve as expanders for me, right? So when I'm talking about expanders, it's somebody that you can look to that you're like, okay, it's possible for me, right? So when I going back to the story, like my dentist in the small town was an expander for me. So I still have those people that I'm like, you're ahead of me and you're lighting the path for what it is that I want to be, do or have. And just by them doing that and them being um, obvious about it, lets me know that it's possible. And I like that and I celebrate it. And I, and that's another thing that I love to do is I love to celebrate other people's wins because it reinforces my belief system again, that those things are possible. Right. So like one of the people that I love and that I follow is Alison Armstrong and she's big in relationship and partnership specifically. And so I always, you know, she, she was very vocal about this really beautiful relationship that she had with her husband who recently passed away, but it was like, Oh, this like beautiful relationship that she created over a lifetime. And so I keep that image for me as the kind of marriage and relationship that I am intentionally building and creating. Fantastic. Here's the, here's the last place I want to go, and I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm excited to get into it. I am pretty fascinated about learning and listening to women talk about their experiences specifically in the workplace and the judgments they are seeing from men. I mean, this came up a, a ton recently, right? Me too and everything else. So, and then and equal pay. I'm curious to get in discussions to find out if you have experienced that along your path when you went through dental school, when you got into the workplace, as you started your coaching and speaking and mentoring and teaching and all the things that you're doing. Do you come across that stigma um, where you're getting a feeling from the male gender uh, as to what's possible, what's what's not possible for you? Um, yeah. So this is such an interesting question. Um, no. And, and when I say no, this is not to discredit anyone else's experience. Everybody gets to have their own experience. But from my experience, I've always held a belief that men support me. I've always, I've always had this belief, right? I mean, this is starting from early. Like my dad was always a huge supporter of me, right? Um, I have been fortunate to be in relationships where I've been in relationships with really fantastic men lifelong. I've had mentors that are men and that have always supported me. So when I say that, I've, I've just never, I've always held the belief for myself, like always that most men are good most of the time. Interesting. I've just, I've just always thought that. And I, and because I believe that so deeply it comes out in my expectation, mm. right? And so I didn't say all men are good all of the time and that they, they're never going to do anything wrong. But I'm saying most men, in my experience, are good most of the time. But that started as a belief. And we know oftentimes the things that we believe or we focus on continue to happen and continue to be made true in your own life. And so because of that, I've always felt very supported and very encouraged. Is there like a random... Somebody is saying something dickish at some point. Yeah. yeah, sure. But to me, it's so much the exception mm. and not the rule that it just doesn't even register as like a thing. That's so interesting. It, it kind of goes back to everything that, you know, I've learned and a lot of it's through you 
And thank you for sharing that, by the way. I know we've never gone there before. Um, yeah, we've never talked we've about never that before. There. We've never gone there. And so I'm always just fascinated to, to hear about people's experience on what's real for them. And what I, one thing that what I took about uh, from listening to you say that is that your core belief is that, you know, men see me as such. I um, Men are good most of the time. And so your belief is that that's the case and you're going to see and experience more of that in your external life, right? Going back to cause and effect, if that's what your message truly is deep down in you from what you had grown up with, from your relationships, then you are going to be focusing more on that and seeing that. And then when the exceptions happen, when you find that dick or asshole that's trying to put you down or do whatever it is, and, and I don't want to put too much judgment on that, but someone that's coming from a place of um, hierarchical superiority or whatever it may be, stereotypically, that you're going to just see that as the exception and it's not going to stick or really cause reactivity with inside you. It, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you said that perfectly. That's 100% true. And because I've just never right like people can be assholes in any gender. And so I've right. never assigned it to to a gender. Some people just are assholes and that's just the way that it is. So to me it's never I've never had enough evidence to be like it's gender specific. Yeah. All women are incredibly great and supportive to me and all men are completely awful and want to see my demise. Like I don't feel that way. Yeah. And a large part of my coaching practice is supporting men. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of it is that I don't I don't I see men in such a reverence in what they contribute. And I think that it is different than women, right? I don't think that they contribute the same things. Now, if we're talking about equality, do I think that all people's lives are valuable? Like, of course, but I think that men and women inherently have different gifts. Mm. And I think that if we assign men the judgment based on the comparison of what a woman thinks the gift should be, then we're going to miss all the really great things that men have to contribute to our lives. All right, Davina. So we went over so, so grateful to be able to speak with you and just hear your wisdom, hear your excitement, hear your enthusiasm and, and be with you today. I just, I can't thank you enough for being here. I, want, I am so happy to be with you. Yeah. I, I just want to give you uh, a minute to give you a plug and really sh have you share with everyone where they could find you and what it is that you're up to. You can find me um, on thethrivedentist.com, and that is also our social media handle for our Instagram and for our Facebook. We're very active there, so I am always open and available for having conversations through instant messaging. Um, right now, we're currently working on a live experience for dentists that are um, in private practice fee-for-service or looking to go that way, where we're going to do an intense dive into their branding, their marketing, photography, and sales, because you know sales is a big, passionate subject of mine. And so we are going to be doing workshopping here in New Mexico, the dates February 27th through March 1st, where we are going to be taking a group of dentists on a really intense journey that way, so that they come out on the other side completely transformed in a lot of those topics and all of those topics, and so that they can take it back to their private practice. Oh my gosh. I, I'm so excited for everyone who signs up for that. Your sales and leadership training is fan freaking fantastic. That is right up your strike zone. And that's going to be a gift for everyone. So thank you, Davina. We're going to talk soon, of course, and can't wait. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. 
If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at adam at escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media.